Hello, and welcome to Teacher in Zion Podcast, a podcast for Christians, Mormons, ex-Mormons, and other Book of Mormon believers, or anyone questioning their faith or the church, with an emphasis on seeking the truth wherever it leads, but especially in gaining a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. This is your host, Doug Hatton, a.k.a. Teacher in Zion recording from the city of Independence, Missouri. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode is entitled, Is Priesthood Even a Thing? A provocative title, I realize, but I hope you'll bear with me as we examine this topic together. This episode has been a long time coming. It might have happened sooner if only I hadn't been so thick-headed. The Lord has been laying it all out for me, step by step, but regardless of how willing I was to hear what the Lord had to show me, my own understanding got in the way. Our mindset, as human beings, will often frame the context of both the question and the answer when seeking understanding from God. We tend to interpret both questions and answers within the framework of our tradition or understanding. Some traditions are easier to overcome than others. What I plan to share with you is fairly huge in scope and in its implications, so we may need a lot of grace and two or three episodes to walk through it all. The concept of priesthood is so thoroughly ingrained in the heart of the Restoration, most of us probably cannot even imagine the church without it. When we think back to the origins of the Restoration, one of the first things we tend to think about is the restoration of the priesthood. Printed in the pages of our official church histories, there are certain events described, such as John the Baptist appearing to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery to ordain them to the Aaronic Priesthood. Then, later on, we read that Peter, James, and John appeared to restore the Melchizedek Priesthood. But are these stories actual history or myth? Were these events recorded at the time they happened or only years after the fact? What is the evidence that they occurred, and who actually witnessed them? We have examined certain aspects of our church history and questioned various traditions in this podcast, things which simply do not stand up to examination against the testimony of honest witnesses and our two foundational records, the Bible and the Book of Mormon. The two books which God says he gave to us for the express purpose of confounding false doctrines, laying down contentions, and establishing peace. I've shared this in previous episodes, but it bears repeating that in 1829, Joseph Smith received a revelation through the Urim and Thummim, telling us that we were to rely upon those things written in the Book of Mormon, quote, For in them are all things written concerning my church, my gospel, and my rock. The coming forth of the Book of Mormon is foundational to our faith, even as the Bible is foundational for the rest of Christianity. It is the one record that stands unblemished, except for a few minor changes made after its original printing, which has since been corrected in other editions. It is the one record that every faction of the Restoration holds in common. Every faction either holds to a different version of the Doctrine and Covenants, or to the Book of Commandments, or they outright reject many of the revelations as being valid or a law unto the Church. We also use different versions of the Bible, 
some the King James, some the RLDS-inspired version, while some use other versions of the Bible. The Book of Mormon is our common core scripture. Its coming forth was proclaimed by the angel Moroni to be essential and the beginning of a great and marvelous work. Both the Bible and the Book of Mormon contain prophecies that these two records, the Bible and the Book of Mormon, were to grow into one. The Book of Mormon states that it is vital to the role of bringing the Native Americans to a remembrance of the great covenants which God made with their fathers, so that they may awaken, rise up, and fulfill their great calling. By extension, then, these two records also play a vital role in the restoration of the House of Israel, which is directly connected to building the New Jerusalem here on this promised land of Joseph, which includes both of his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. These two brotherly tribes, reunited in their purpose, are Joseph made whole again, which prepares the way for the gathering of the House of Israel during a time of great trouble. Even as Joseph of ancient times was prepared by God to save his entire family, being established second only to Pharaoh, and thus able to grant the family of Israel sanctuary in the land of Egypt, and give them nourishment during a time of drought and famine. The great promises concerning the fulfillment of God's covenants in the Bible, but in particular the Book of Mormon, stands at the very core of our unique calling and purpose. And at the core of these two records is Jesus Christ. It is the point of these two books to lead us to Christ and reveal how we can have a deeper relationship with him. But not only this, but Christ is himself the word of God made flesh. Hence the reason why we must learn to hold fast to that rod of iron, because it is the word of God and the word of God becomes lifted from the pages of our scriptures and brought to life in and through the gift of the Holy Ghost, which illuminates those passages and brings them to life for us that we may properly comprehend them. From what we can tell, from 1823 to 1829, the entire purpose of Joseph Smith's calling is to bring forth the record of the Nephite people. In March of 1829, God told the church through revelation received by the Yerman Thummim that Joseph Smith, quote, has a gift to translate the book, and I have commanded him that he shall pretend to no other gift, for I will grant him no other gift, End quote. It was as simple as that. One has to wonder why God so specifically went out of his way to make it very plain that Joseph Smith was to be limited to this purpose, never to be given any other gift than this, even commanding him that he should not pretend to have any other gift. I have always believed in Ray Treat's purpose principle, and that is that nothing was placed in our scriptures, nor does God ever utter any word or give any revelation unless there is an express purpose for it. So why did God feel it necessary to issue forth those words, unless it was necessary for God, being eternal and having a knowledge of all things that men will do, knew that it would be necessary for us to have those words in the last days, to serve as one of many clues that God sees fit to leave behind for us, that we may piece together with his help. 
Remember that the angel told Joseph Smith that his name would be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues. Although Joseph would interpret this prophecy in the best light possible, to mean that both good and evil would be spoken of him, Moroni prophesied what he did, because God knew all things that would befall Joseph. And yet he used him anyway, even as the Book of Mormon itself explains to us that God uses the weak things of the earth, that he uses weak men, which we also see again and again throughout the pages of the Bible. And it says that he does this so that men may be humble and forced to rely upon his grace so that they may have nothing to boast of. But his promise was that if they would humble themselves before God and have faith in him, that he will make their weaknesses become a strength. Again, it was also given to Joseph Smith in 1829 through the Urim and Thummim that they were to rely upon those things written in the Book of Mormon. For in them are all things written concerning the church. In 1835, men would change this and other revelations given directly through the Urim and Thummim, which were spoken to them by the power of God, and previously accepted by them as having been the very words of Christ during the first five years of the church. When looking at the specific changes that were made to these revelations, in relation to the direction they took at that time, I can come to no other conclusion than that these revelations were purposely changed to fit the new direction, and cover up the fact that they had now strayed from the original directives. The changes to these revelations became the cause of many people leaving the church during this time. Another thing to keep in mind is that the church had already been under condemnation for three years by the time they made changes to these revelations. I recognize that for many of you, this is a review of things previously stated, but please bear with me as we lay the groundwork necessary to explore this. My purpose in relaying this history is that it does have a direct bearing on the discussion about priesthood and how we got it. But let us first rewind the clock and go back to a happier time in the earliest days of the church. Let's travel back in time together some years before so many of those first elders and even witnesses of the Book of Mormon plates felt it necessary to break fellowship with Joseph Smith and leave the church. Let us return to the time shortly after the Nephite record had been translated. We are now in late 1829 to early 1830s. At this time, though some mistakes have been made, and Joseph Smith was specifically called out by God for his tendency to give in to the persuasions of men, and warned that if he was not careful, he would fall. The members of the church, though, appear to be happy and mostly obedient to the Lord's command to rely upon the things that were written in the Book of Mormon by following the plain and simple steps of faith that were required at their hands. Bearing witness to the world by entering the waters of baptism, they received the promise of Christ that he would baptize them with the Holy Ghost. Through their obedience to the Bible and the Book of Mormon, for they had no other scriptures, and through obedience to the promptings of the Spirit, they began to work in all of the gifts of the Spirit. Even many of the members did prophesy and spoke in tongues. Some even sang in the Spirit. They cast out devils, and people were healed. 
The signs of the believers, spoken in the last chapter of Mark and in Third Nephi, were experienced among them. And thereby, according to the promise of God, the church was brought out of the wilderness. They came out of the wilderness by walking away from the errors of men and walking in to the light of Christ. They came out of the wilderness by having the Spirit of God among them. It was as simple as that. By faith in Christ and His merits, they began to enter into the kingdom of God. And we are told that this church, which God was bringing out of the wilderness, existed before Joseph Smith and before the Book of Mormon was ever translated. According to the revelation from the Lord, it was already in existence, but simply in the wilderness. Our LDS Doctrine and Covenants section 3, or in the LDS, it's section 10. It states that this great work, which God was doing, would, quote, build up his church, end quote. In other words, already existing, not destroy it. And it goes on to say that the definition of the church was simply, Whosoever repenteth and cometh unto me, the same is my church. You can't restore something that doesn't exist. If you're going to restore an antique automobile, you first have to have the old car to restore. The church existed. It was all those who repented and came unto Christ, regardless of what denomination they belonged to. The church was simply a little rusty and missing some parts. God's plan was to restore it. So very simple an idea, isn't it? At this point, the Restoration Church very much resembled the New Testament Church of the Bible, as well as the Church of Christ established on this continent among the Nephites. The only thing that really separated us from other Christian denominations was the belief that God still spoke to people today, and that the gifts of the Spirit, such as miracles, prophecy, tongues, etc., were not done away. We did now have an additional book of Scripture, but God never did call upon us to convert anyone to the Book of Mormon. Rather, he called upon us to bring souls to Christ using the Bible and the Book of Mormon, in which was the fullness of the gospel. But it seems that men tend to get things backward. No, we were not called to convert souls to the Book of Mormon, but rather the purpose of the Book of Mormon was to convert souls to Christ. The church now had in their possession a record of the ancient people who once inhabited this continent, which bore record that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, and made known the covenants that God had made with the indigenous people of this land. All that we had to do as Gentiles was to repent, heed the words of this book, and be changed by coming unto Christ. Only after doing this did we have our next task to perform. Joseph had been told by God that one of the great purposes for the coming forth of the Book of Mormon was that the Lamanites would come to a knowledge of the gospel and God's promises to Lehi's seed. In 1830, the church was specifically commanded to take the gospel to the Lamanites. At this point, they had only one task to perform. It was not to build up the church, come up with more offices in the church, or create a hierarchy. They were not instructed to build Zion. They were not instructed to print another book of scripture. And in fact, they were commanded in three separate revelations not to publish or make known the revelations they had received. 
they had just one task to perform. Go into all the world and preach this gospel, beginning with the Lamanites. Why? That information was contained in the Book of Mormon itself, because the Lamanites are the covenant people of God for whom this record has come forth. Just as importantly, for our own benefit, the seed of Lehi was the key to the New Jerusalem being built on this continent. Our only job as Gentiles was to repent and come unto Christ, so that we might be numbered among the house of Israel. And more specifically, it says that we would be numbered among the seed of Lehi. The seed of Lehi had to first be awakened, so that through their restoration, we could be numbered among the covenant people, whom God had covenanted with to give them this land. The Book of Mormon promised that if we would do this, we might be able to assist them in the building up of the new Jerusalem. So you see, this mission was critical to our future. Without the seed of Lehi, the concept of Zion goes nowhere. So we had our mission. We were to go to the Lamanites and do what was necessary to bring them to Christ and a knowledge of the covenants that God had made with them, not only to tell them a story and hand them a book which they could not read yet, but actually to join with them. As brothers and sisters in Christ, they should have been numbered as a part of the church. Since the Book of Mormon says that our future lies in being numbered among the seed of Lehi, we needed to become one body of people, joined together in a singular, united purpose. It was by this means that Zion would have come about. And as we learned from Nephi early in the pages of the Book of Mormon, quote, I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them, that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth. End quote. So I ask you, did God fail the saints? Or did men fail in their obedience to the things that God required at their hands? Remember that the Book of Mormon says, If we would be humble ourselves, repent, and be obedient to the voice of the Lord, that we would be numbered among the seed of Lehi. Reading from 1 Nephi, in the RLDS edition of the Book of Mormon, it's chapter 3, verse 201, or in the LDS, it's chapter 14, 1 and 2. It reads, And it shall come to pass, that if the Gentiles shall hearken unto the Lamb of God in that day, that he shall manifest himself unto them in word, and also in power, and in very deed, unto the taking away of their stumbling blocks, and harden not their hearts unto the Lamb of God, they shall be numbered among the seed of thy father. Speaking of Lehi. Now let me ask you a very simple question. Has Christ manifested himself to us in power? Have all of our stumbling blocks been removed? And have we been numbered among the seed of Lehi? Have we become one people with them? Do they see us as part of them, as their own kin? If you aren't sure, go out to an Indian reservation like Pine Ridge and find out. Ask them. The few feeble attempts to go to the Native Americans were short-lived and half-hearted at best. To be perfectly honest, I really don't think that most people really wanted these so-called savages brought into the church. They didn't want to take the needed time or make the needed effort to get to know the Native American tribes. 
They were fine sending a couple of missionaries to spend a few days out in the wilderness, but it does not appear that the church had a strong desire to do the necessary work, to truly gain their trust, to live and work among them, perhaps learn their language, try to understand their culture. Just showing up to hand them a book that they cannot read wasn't enough. Let's be honest. We didn't really want the Indians living among us. And we didn't want to live among them. Despite what we read in the Book of Mormon, we didn't have a heart for these people. And I would submit to you that because we didn't go all the way in our own conversion to Christ, even as Paul experienced on the road to Damascus, we didn't gain the love of Christ for them. Instead, we became distracted with other things. And it is my strong conviction that this is where Satan came under the cover of darkness to sow tares into the field where the Lord had sown wheat. In 2019, after quoting from the parable about an enemy who comes in and sows tares in the field, the Holy Spirit spoke these words to me. This is the story of the restoration. Instead of fulfilling our commission and taking seriously the words contained in the tremendous record that God had placed in our hands, we became distracted by new doctrines and new mysteries. I believe Joseph once more began to give into the persuasions of men which weakness the Lord had previously warned him about. And for some reason, we suddenly began to believe that we could now establish Zion on our own without the seed of Lehi. This is a mystery. If you go and read what the scriptures say, how did we come to this point? Trying to build Zion on our own was doomed to failure. Zion did not fail because people didn't consecrate all their wealth to a bishop, but because we never were called to build Zion in the first place. We were only seeking to do so because we were being disobedient and did not love the plain and simple truth revealed in the Book of Mormon. Instead, we sought after things that we could not understand, and God delivered us over to the delusions that we desired. Once more, I ask, has Christ manifested himself in power to us as he said he would? Have all of our stumbling blocks been removed, or do we stumble still? And have we been numbered among the seed of Lehi, as the prophecy says? If these things have not transpired, then I propose a simple truth, that we, as a people, did not hearken unto the Lamb of God as we were supposed to. We instead sought our own path, a different path. And in the process, we opened the door to Satan to come in. And by this means, we managed to create our own corrupt religion, built around the relics of a move of God. Yes, we have the Book of Mormon, but have we heeded the words contained within it? Rather than choosing obedience and being numbered among the seed of Lehi and having the power of God in our midst as we assist them in the building of the new Jerusalem, we have instead paid a corrupt tribute to what was once a move of God, a restoration which was long ago placed on hold awaiting the process of correction and lessons to be learned so that the Lord could once more call upon a remnant to come out of their dead religion and come into a deeper relationship with him so that we might get a do-over and this time fully emerge from the wilderness 
and enter into the promised land given to all those who refuse to follow men, but instead follow the Lamb of God. The Lord, already knowing everything we would do long before we ever did it, has already set forth the plan to set things right and cause them to be written in the scriptures. He has a plan to set his hand a second time to restore his covenant people and recover a remnant among the Gentiles who will make the decision to forsake their traditions, repent of the lies of Satan, and give heed to the words contained in the two records he had given them all those years ago, giving heed to the voice of his Spirit. What an exciting opportunity we have been given. What I propose to do then is lay out all of the evidence from beginning to end and plainly state what it is that I believe the Lord has revealed, and then you get to decide what to believe. If you're wondering who I am to tell you anything about the priesthood, that is a very good question. The truth is, I am nothing that you should listen to me. I am a man, after all, prone to error as any man. What we do know is that the scriptures tell us that in the mouth of multiple witnesses, God will establish his truth. They also tell us that he will send additional confirmation of that truth by examination of the scriptures and by way of the Holy Spirit. But you will have to study the matter out, and you will have to ask, seek, and knock if you wish to know the truth. When God shares a truth and calls upon me or any other man to share that truth, our only duty then is to declare what we have received and allow the Spirit to bear witness to it to others as they prayerfully study the matter out. As a teacher, it is also my gift to be able to lay out the facts and point out scriptures for your consideration. But it is not my job to convince you of the truth. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. I do hope you will stick with me through this presentation, however long it takes, to present the evidence and share what is in my heart and mind. What I have to share is going to be a challenge for many of you, but it isn't all about tearing something down, except to tear down the lies of Satan and his kingdom. If we're able to let go of some of our tradition, instead hold fast to Christ and the two records he gave us to know the truth, I believe our faith will ultimately be lifted to a higher ground. It will also resolve a great many issues that have long held us back. When examining error in our church traditions, it can be a little bit like breaking up ground using a hoe. This may seem destructive to the untrained eye, but it can be a necessary part of the process. In this way, the ground is prepared to receive new seed. The Lord's correction, although sometimes challenging and hard to bear, is a part of his great love for us. But the one thing I try to ask myself is, would I rather be comfortable and remain in error, or would I rather be forced out of my comfort zone and be corrected? Interestingly enough, there was never any mention by Moroni or Joseph Smith, nor do we find in any of the revelations given through the Urim and Thummim at that time regarding a need to restore priesthood. The word priesthood was never once mentioned in the early days of the church. It would be another five years before there be any mention of priesthood, and this being a full two years after the church came under condemnation in 1832 for treating lightly the New Covenant and the Book of Mormon. 
the only restoration spoken of by Moroni or Joseph Smith or ever mentioned in any of the scriptures or revelations given to the church was the restoration spoken of by the prophets, or in other words, the fulfilling of God's promises to his covenant people, even the restoration of the whole house of Israel. Revelations prior to 1834 or 1835 that mention the priesthood read this way only because they were later altered to include it. For the first six years of the church, people were baptized, members were added to the church, the gifts of the Holy Spirit were fully manifested, including healings, miracles, and prophecies. Men were called and set aside to do the work of ministry, some as elders, priests, or teachers. And because God had called upon these men to serve him, and they responded, they understood that they had authority from God. However, never was there any mention of priesthood in the church, nor were they ordained into a priesthood, nor is there any evidence of such a priesthood spoken of under the new covenant, except it be the royal priesthood of the believer, which every one who believes in Christ is a member of. We do not find mention of the priesthood in the New Testament portion of either the Bible or the Book of Mormon. Neither is there any mention of priesthood or a restoration of it in the papers of the church, or in the personal diaries of any of the members of the church, or the diaries of the men called to serve, or even in the writings of Joseph Smith that dated back to that period of time. Very curious indeed especially when we consider how the concept of priesthood has now become of paramount importance, part of the very bedrock of the Restoration. It is the one idea that lends legitimacy to the idea of the one true institutional church. It not only divides Book of Mormon believers from all other Christians, but effectively divides even those who believe in the Book of Mormon, becoming a barrier between the various factions of the Restoration. Even if we could come to some agreement on doctrine, issues of authority keep us from coming together in unity. Pondering this takes me back to the 1990s, when I first gave my life to the Lord and was ordained a teacher. Each time I sat down to read the Bible, I would ask the Holy Spirit to open the scriptures to me. I recall while reading the passages in the New Testament where the scribes and the Pharisees asked John the Baptist, and later on, Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? I will never forget the first time I heard the voice of the Spirit tell me, as I read those very passages, how he likened the Restoration people as unto the Jews of old. Looking back, I would have to say that this was probably the first clue the Lord gave me that revealed how he felt about our concept of authority. What set the men in the Restoration apart from ministry from other churches was that instead of setting themselves up as a light or going to seminary or being selected by other men to serve in a capacity as a minister, they believed that they had to be called by God and that by hearing his voice to go forth and preach or baptize or minister in some way that you received the only authority needed. Simply stated, hearing and obeying the voice of the Lord was their authority. Once the Book of Mormon was translated, and Joseph Smith gave up the plates and the Urim and Thummim, he told the other elders that he was now done with his work, except to join the other elders in going out and proclaiming the gospel. This was in agreement with the revelation from God, 
that Joseph was given the gift to translate the Book of Mormon, but was commanded to pretend to have no other gift, for God stated that he would grant him none other gift. And by commandment of God, in 1831, in Doctrine and Covenants 42, both in the RLDS and LDS editions, it says that the elders, priests, and teachers of the church are commanded to teach the principles of my gospel, which are in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, in which is the fullness of the gospel. End quote. Again, this harkens back to the prophecies found in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon, that the Gentiles were to be given two records, and these two records would grow to become one in their hand. In other words, the two sacred books of Scripture tell us we're to have a two-in-one, not a three-in-one or a four-in-one, and that if we were faithful to the words recorded in these two records, it would be sufficient that we could come to Christ and have our very natures changed by it. And by repenting as Gentiles, we could be numbered among the house of Israel and numbered with the seed of Lehi. And through the awakening of the seed of Lehi, righteousness would be established in this land and the power of God would fall upon us from heaven and the new Jerusalem built. There is no way of getting around this sequence of events no way to do an end around the prophecies given by the Holy Ghost and recorded in the scriptures. It isn't my desire to be controversial or offend anyone. I have always loved the truth. I have occasionally been beaten up for speaking it, but I have also made errors. Those errors have been valuable lessons and caused me to be a lot more cautious or less likely to fall for certain types of deceptions. But that is no guarantee that I cannot make a mistake. I am human and therefore fallible. We are told not to trust in man. So I implore you to seek out the truth for yourself rather than just believe the things I share. Unless the Holy Spirit bears witness to you because he has already been at work in your life, leading you to study these things out. As with everything of importance, we need to go to God. He is the only one who is perfect and the only one who will never lead you astray. Having said that, I must testify that the matter of priesthood will not leave my mind ever since the Lord set me on this path, when in 2020, the Holy Spirit impressed upon me the following words, quote, There is a problem with the understanding that the restoration people have in regards to priesthood. End quote. The scriptures promise that God is faithful to complete the work he begins in us, in sharing the things I have learned, I must, by necessity, touch upon information presented in previous episodes of the podcast. But there will also be new material given and a final conclusion that I will present for your consideration. I want to stop here and share that at this particular point, as I was jotting down notes in preparation for this episode, I wrote the following, quote, If what I share today is true, and I believe it to be true with all my heart, Others will step forward and confirm it. And there are some whom the Lord has been directing along this path who will suddenly understand what it is that he has been trying to reveal to them. End quote. At this point, after having written this, I stopped. I began to feel some trepidation as the weight of sharing these things began to press in upon me. Understanding the implications of this information, a certain degree of self-doubt crept in. 
I hesitated, contemplating whether the timing was right. I turned to the Lord in my thoughts, and that is when I heard the ding on my phone, alerting me of an email delivery. Looking, I found that I had received an email from a listener, someone I had never heard from before. The subject of their email was, Question about the Priesthood. The resulting dialogue and the things shared by this listener were not only encouraging to me, but a confirmation. The problem is, time is short, and if we are to move forward and catch the tsunami wave of the great move of God in these last days, we must be rid of those things which hinder us. Since this is already going on a bit long, we'll stop here. I realize that I have barely begun to scratch the surface of this topic, but all things must be done in order, one step at a time, even as the Lord stepped me through it, if I am to have any chance of not losing you along the way. For others, many of these things have now become obvious to you, and the Lord has already been stepping you through the same kinds of revelations as I have received. One thing is for sure, I won't be the first one to break this news. Instead, I will be just one of many voices who will stand up as a witness to these things. I pray that you will be patient with me, and that you will take all that I share into serious consideration. Know that if you hold fast to the rod of iron, which are the two books that God authorized as our foundational scriptures, and if you hold fast to the voice of the Spirit, it is my belief that you will come out the other side of this discussion strengthened in the Lord, even as I have been, and set free from the delusions of men and the deceptions of Satan. May you continue to be strengthened as you hold fast to Christ, being the light of the world and the way that we must all travel, never letting go of his hand. May we be free of lesser things and be delivered into the very kingdom of God. And if I have not totally offended you yet, I hope you will join me next week for part two of this series. Until then, God bless. Join us for discussion in our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash hope of Zion or at our YouTube channel, Teacher in Zion. That's the word teacher, space, and in Zion spelled as one word. My books can be found at amazon.com forward slash author forward slash Douglas Hatton. That's H-A-T like a hat on your head. T-E-N like the number 10. Until next time.